Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of The Problem with Reading. I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And I'm Nick. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Sam has once again abandoned us as he is wants to do. It's just sort of like his perpetual hobby to leave us in the lurch. But thankfully, we found a replacement. Uh, Nick, do you want to introduce yourself real, real quick? Yeah, sure. I've actually been a guest episode on the podcast a couple of times. Uh, whenever Steven says, like, I've got this one friend who's really into psychology, that's that's me. So, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I like to feel that I've already been a part of it. You've been haunting us for, the, like, the whole time. Uh, it's, we're not haunted by uh, by Charles Taylor's thesis. We're actually haunted by Nick. Mm-hmm. And the, the lingering specter of random psychology anecdotes. Exactly. Exactly. Which will finally be useful to have someone who, uh, I'd, I'd, at least... Can guarantee can can guarantee that they know more about like psychology and neuroscience and all this stuff than we do because we've been uh, very much at the mercy of whatever McGilchrist deems to you know let fall from his table for us to to scrabble for. But hopefully you can you know bring your own firepower to the table. Yeah, and there's going to be some bad news in that front, but uh, we'll see about that later. Nick's <laughs> here to break our hearts. We've been we've been fanboying over McGilchrist for a while now, and he's gonna he's gonna set us right on a few things apparently. To be fair, if he had to pick a chapter to come and like depress us, this was the one because I'm pretty yeah. sure we're all vaguely disappointed in, in this one so far. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a chapter where it turns out that actually it was uh, McIntyre in disguise the whole time, and uh, he's wrong. You you take that back. You take that back. I'm fine <laughs> no, with you saying he's wrong. <laughs> That's not even close to what I'm going to say. <laughs> <laughs> uh, before we get into the uh, the juicy. Well, not juicy. The the flavorless, symmetrical meat of the Enlightenment. Mm. Um, uh, what are we drinking right now? Well, right now I am having a fine glass of scotch to celebrate us being uh, us being back on the on the roll. So, uh, Lafroy, ten years. It's, uh, it's my favorite. Good stuff. Nick, mm-hmm. how about you? Um, I have a nice bottle of Henry Weinard's Gourmet Root Beer. Um, mm. Probably one of the better varieties you're going to get in the grocery store. Um, unfortunately, the root beer store is dead now, but uh, you know, we still have Henry Winder. Memory eternal. Um, do you know, just, I'm just, I'm curious because I've always wondered, but like off the top of your head, like root beer is made of various medicinally flavors. Do you, do you know what they are? Um, short answer, no. Long answer, there's a bunch of weird things you weren't really expecting there. Like uh, molasses is kind of weird for a drink. Uh, there's mint in there. Depends on, on how you're doing that. Um, hmm. People do like caramel, but uh, no, the, the, the full list of flavors is, is really weird. Um, oh, there's a bit of a licorice too, I think sometimes. Mm. Like, uh, yeah, I just um, I don't know the history of the drink. I've I've heard that it uh, it was common in the colonial times. So like that's oh definitely a flavors are not part of the modern like capitalist like their ritual drink. Like you know can't do wine that's Christian can't do alcohol because that's too much fun. So definitely like probably Freemason thing. Like I. <laughs> Um, so uh, as as for myself, I am drinking a lovely glass of uh, Evan Williams Black Label, which I will now no longer suffer any criticism of making this my primary drink because I found an internet article that put it at number two of ten above all these other ones that are like one or two shelves above it and say that it's like the best of the, you know, the, the middle tier. So I, you know, this is my hill and, and here I stand. And Stephen agrees with me, at least a little bit. Okay, so I agree with you that Evan Williams is fine. It's a good whiskey, but like... Did the words, I will no longer suffer abuse because I found something on the internet that that proves me right. Did those just really come out of your mouth? I mean, that's how I've built my entire identity so far and nothing's mm-hmm. gone wrong. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> well, uh, speaking of 
things going wrong. Uh, the Master and His Emissary, Chapter 10, uh, is about the Enlightenment. And um, Stephen, do you want to take us right into that? Maybe just give us like a sentence or two, if you recall where we left off last time. Just a sentence or two, or, or a fair amount. I'm getting better, though. I'm getting better. I no longer have like books of summary that are virtually as long as the chapter itself. I just, I, this is the nice short little, little summary. So yeah, let's get into it. Um, so we have finally gotten into the age that ruined ethics, according to McIntyre. Not only was its project of justifying morality doomed to fair, fail, but according to McGilchrist, it also laid the groundwork that would lead to left hemisphere dominance. So pretty much everything would fail after that. Uh, McGilchrist begins with a brief discussion on the difference between reason and rationality. Uh, going a bit into the etymology of the two, which for brevity's sake, we won't get into here. You're welcome. Uh, the gist of it is that rationality is rigid, logical, abstracted from context, and internally consistent, if that sounds familiar, whereas reason is intuitive, experiential, grounded in reality, something that we also call common sense. Um, he, he pretty much does his typical thing where he matches it, left brain, right brain, says that this is an important distinction that kind of comes, um, or that, that, that will come into play later, and from that he moves into a rather vicious attack on Descartes. Uh, the thrust of it is that Descartes attempts to ground everything in rationality, the internally consistent abstract maze of mirrors that is the left hemisphere's mode of being and the worldview therein produced. Um, and it's eerily similar to the thought patterns and worldview of schizophrenics, he contends. When one makes the active choice to distance oneself from their surroundings and view them with a detached clinical eye, at first glance this may, be, uh, may appear that uh, it will grant clarity and a better view of reality, but McGilchrist urges us to remember that things change based on the nature of the attention brought to bear upon them. Uh, for example, a mountain is different to a cartographer, artist, climber, miner, etc. Quote, Adopting a stance that is normally found only in patients suffering from schizophrenia is not obviously a recipe for finding a higher truth, end quote. Descartes' skepticism about the connection between hunger and the desire to eat, pain and distress, and even his eventual conclusion that he can only be sure that he has a body in a probabilistic sense admittedly does smack of a remarkable disconnection with reality, a hallmark of schizophrenia. Uh, even his conclusion concerning time is atomistic, that there is no continuity, but rather, quote, each moment is a somehow irreducible, real, self-enclosed atomic point in the structure of the universe and is devoid of any sustaining continuity with any other moment, end quote. This is perfectly in line with the sensibilities of the left hemisphere and that of schizophrenia, which stems from an over-reliance on an abnormally functioning left hemisphere. Descartes' philosophy led him to pondering whether the people outside his window were actually, quote, mere machines wearing hats and coats, end quote. And... Miguel Chris moves on to say that this is a sort of devitalization um, that is the logical conclusion of the Cartesian worldview, uh, and one that uh, Johann George uh, Harman, a critic of the Enlightenment, uh, knew would lead to both bureaucratization and boredom. Uh, bureaucratization is brought up briefly, but then Miguel Chris seemingly drops it like it's hot, which I found more than a little frustrating. It seemed like that would be a really interesting point to get into. That said, he may get into it later. Who knows if, if that's just kind of him teeing himself up. So we'll, we'll see. Um, let's see. He has a, a fantastic uh, uh, foray into the philosophy behind boredom, uh, where that started reminding me a bit of Walker Percy's instance on boredom, but more on that later. Uh, Miguel Chris' short venture into uh, some of the thinkers on boredom was very fascinating, though. Uh, the concept of boredom as perceiving reality itself to be lacking in sufficiency uh, a malady affecting not yourself, but the objects you perceive, 
uh, was one of the projects of author Alberto Morovia. And then Patricia Specks calls boredom, quote, the dreariness of non-engagement, end quote. Isaiah Berlin tells the story of uh, Madame de la Poplinieri, sorry for my pronunciation, uh, contemplating suicide out of boredom stemming from life having no meaning and purpose. Does this sound familiar? The, the point McGilchrist is making is that boredom is coming from a passive view of life and experience, the detached observing spectator that is the left hemisphere. Boredom is a characteristic of the left hemisphere, even concerning its perception of tr time, writes Martin Waugh. Quote, when we are bored, our attitude toward time is altered. It is that of a, or sorry, it is as it is in some dreamlike states. Time seems endless. There is no distinction between past, present, and future. There's only, it, there seems only to be an endless present, end quote. Uh, McGilchrist points out the similarity between this and Plato's forms. Uh, moving right along, McGilchrist cites Isaiah Berlin as identifying three axioms that defined enlightenment thought and eventually diffusing into the fabric of Western culture on the whole. One, all genuine questions can be answered. Two, all these answers are knowable and they can be discovered by means which can be learned and taught to other persons. Three, all answers must be compatible with one another. Here we can see clearly the left hemisphere's dominance. Note the emphasis on the explicit, the rigidity of its logic, the optimism of its own abilities to know. This paradigm of thought was a hallmark of enlightenment philosophy and ended up being becoming baked into Western culture itself, as we are, for better or for and for worse, children of the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment also placed emphasis on optimistic emotions. Apparently during this time, King Lear and other Shakespeare's uh, other of Shakespeare's tragedies were rewritten to have comedic rather than tragic endings. Uh, Miguel Chris dryly notes that this sort of optimism borders on the realm of denial, that, quote, to be without the capacity for sadness would mean a degree of a detachment from the manifestly suffering world borders on the psycho psychopathic, end quote. Uh, vision itself was viewed as something that would capture a sight even. Uh, nature is now a hunting grounds for sights to be seen, caught, as it were. This all culminated in the idea of a panopticon, uh, Bentham's ideal prison. The basic idea of the panopticon is a prison in which there is a central tower that has vision into all cells. A single guard can at any time peer into any cell, and though they can't view them all at once, prisoners know that it's possible that they're being observed, and therefore they must act as though they are. Note here the all-seeing eye of the central tower, a figure commonly appearing in the paintings of schizophrenics. And know also, again, vision is being viewed more and more as a means of control or capturing or grasping left hemisphere. Uh, McGilchrist goes on a very long tirade of how crazy Bentham was, which, given that he started utilitarianism, I don't know, but we can skip over that. Suffice it to say he was weird. Uh, the last thing in this part was that was discussed was the Enlightenment's dismantling of art, but the resistance that music and architecture put up to this dismantling due to the difficulty of making these explicit. Quote, Though one can ask what a poem or painting is about, the question becomes vapid when applied to music or architecture, end quote. I'm not entirely sure this follows, as we'll see later on that both brutalist architecture and the insipid works of John Cage at all are both ostensible counterexamples. Uh, this, these both strike me as the fever dreams of the left hemisphere, but perhaps more on that later. We'll see what McGilchrist comes up with. Over to you, Robin. Yeah, so picking right up uh, where Stephen left off, through a few select quotes from poems and then looking at uh, and noting some trends in the art of the in Enlightenment, he picks out uh, symmetry and two other concepts that he thinks are related, equality and stasis as, as essential to the Enlightenment project. And the symmetry is seen in a couple different places, but he particularly points out poetry and portraiture, um, which he says is unusual because humans don't actually prefer perfect symmetry in people or in their partners. It, it, a perfect, uh, a perfectly symmetrical face 
leads to an uncanny effect. It doesn't seem real. It seems more than real. However, we do really like, and the Greeks very much preferred, symmetry in shapes and also in math, where operations can be applied to both sides and leave them unchanged. He says that symmetry represents something that's common to this whole Enlightenment project, a universality where there's independence. Not, it's not contingent on something else. It's it's very much akin to Plato's simple forms, to laws. Um, and the left hemisphere has a special relationship with equality, stasis, and symmetry due to the nature of the way that it processes the world. Because the left hemisphere is categorical, and categories hold things in stasis. It pulls them from a constantly flowing, uh, chaotic world out of context and contains them and organizes them. Furthermore, inside these categories, things are equal by the nature of their categories. Once you put things into the into a box together, they are all in the box together, and that is their identity. And furthermore, as the left hemisphere categorizes things, the characteristics of the categories begin to reflect back down onto the individual's and their variations within the categories. He calls this the Procrustean bed after the ancient uh, Greek myth of the man who had the bed that would fit anyone. It was just, if you were too tall, he would chop you off to make you fit. And if you were too, too short, he would stretch to make sure that you did too. And uh, furthermore, the left hemisphere gets power to control these categories and value some more than others. Stephen brought up utilitarianism and what Ian McGilchrist seems to think is the primary value of the left hemisphere is how it can use something. It's utilitarian usefulness. Um, so then he moves into how these sort of entered into practice. And he brings up two examples. I don't really think he does either of them justice, but we take what we get. Uh, the American and French Revolution, sort of the classic two uh, uh, revolutions of the Enlightenment. And he specifically talks about um, equality in the French Revolution. And McGilchrist says that the French Revolution made a key error in directly pursuing certain ideal goals that can't ever be directly pursued. Rather, these ideals are emergent from communities. They're qualities that describe communities rather than abstract things that you can pull out and create them out of nothing. And because the left hemisphere gets its world that it then subtracts and pulls out from, from the right hemisphere, and the right hemisphere doesn't portray the world that it receives in equal terms, the only way that the left hemisphere can get to an abstract real world is by eliminating the things that stand out. It can't add things to this world to create equality, to create freedom. It can only eliminate those things that appear to stand in the way. Um, he says, quote, thus, since there is no equality in the giveness of things as they actually appear in the right hemisphere, equality becomes for the left hemisphere a need and a drive to pull down anything that stands out as not equaling equality, the essentially negative sense in which equality was pursued through the mayhem and carnage of the French Revolution. Neither is there any liberty in what is given by the right hemisphere, which delivers the world as a living web of interdependencies that require responses and entail responsibility, not the exhilarating nihilism of liberty in the sense of casting off all constraints. The liberty of the left hemisphere is, as is bound to be the case, an abstract concept, not what experience teaches us through living." End quote. And he says that what this results in is that for the left hemisphere to do anything about the world, for it to act upon it, it has to negate things. It can only eliminate things, which is why the left hemisphere and its control over this worldview leads to the eroding and dismantling of, of structures that naturally evolved over time. Um, it can't create freedom in the abstract. It can only remove perceived impediments to it. He moves right along to the American Revolution uh, and doesn't give it much attention except to say that it wasn't quite as philosophically ruinous. It had more attention to commonality. 
Um, but that it, it eventually did fall prey to large scale rootless mechanical capitalism and then just skips right along to his next topic. Uh, he says, uh, or he returns rather to the French Revolution um, and specifically its seeming fear and uncontrollable rage towards things that, in, that would normally inspire awe to, to sacred things. And he says that this is a fear of metaphors because they represent a unique threat to utilitarian to utilitarianism. They're uniquely non-utilitarianism values. So things like the king and the church are the two natural targets of this utilitarianism. And he has an aside, you know, yes, corruption, yes, kings are, are bad, but also it also logically follows from the utilitarian mindset that these are dangerous because they're metaphorical of divine presence and authority in the world that can't be justified under utilitarian terms, but do comport with the right hemisphere view of the full world. Um, and he says, uh, quote, anything that is essentially sacramental, anything that is not founded on rationality, but on bonds of reverence or awe, right hemisphere terrain, becomes the enemy of the left hemisphere and constitutes a bar to its supremacy, end quote. And so then he ends his discussion of the chapter more or less of a case example of this an image of the French king who's been beheaded, a hand holds the, the head and the blood is sprinkling all around. It's lovely. Uh, but he interprets this uh, somewhat ironically, metaphorically, in that this is a metaphor of essentially divine command on earth, uh, of uh, the presence of God in humanity that's been destroyed, it's been dislocated, it's been decapitated. And similar with the images of saints that were destroyed in this saint period and sort of bizarre secular ritualized executions where beheading and breaking them as if they were people. Uh, he, he says that the need to mutilate these images indicates a sort of belief in, these, in their power because these images are not representation in the proper sense, but rather a metaphorical understanding, a whole worldview that was threatening the belief of the divine in human and that the whole enlightenment fear and destruction of them through the French revolution is a kind of mad denial. Uh, he ends the chapter by talking about the uncanny, and this is sort of linking back to the Descartes section of which are things that are mechanically created as a simulacra of life of a living body becoming fragmentary and independent, you know, saying this is not my arm or that's not my arm when it's very clearly attached to you. And he contends that this happens when the supernatural or the metaphoric Things that are in the right hemisphere's domain appear in the mechanistic, certain human-controlled left hemisphere, and it, it, it's afraid of that. It has to destroy it because it challenges the way that it uh, builds out the world. Uh, he finally concludes with discussing Frankenstein, sort of leading into the uh, romanticism of, of the next chapter, uh, who Frankenstein, of course, is a man built of the constituent parts of a human, yet is not fully living, or if he is, creates horrible results. Uh, you know, is life reducible or not? And from there, he's ready to skip into the industrial revolution and romanticism. That's uh, that's what he has on the enlightenment. So from, from talking before the podcast, I think we've all kind of concluded that none of us were huge fans of this chapter. But I'm thinking, let's do the... Uh, I don't know, like what what your mom makes you you and your brothers do after getting in a fight. You have to say at least one nice thing about it before uh, before we completely uh, start styling all over Miguel Christ. Um, so, yeah, I, I I one one thing I actually did uh, did really enjoy um, 
so I uh, I'll I'll start by uh, citing two of my uh, to my favorites, Dave Bentley Hart and Dave Foster Wallace. Um, in his discussion on freedom, the idea of the left hemispheres kind of taking away of rules and of um of bindings and whatnot that is a that is a typical kind that is a kind of freedom, but it's something that David Bentley Hart would say is a nihilistic freedom. It is an amorphous, amorphous abstract, chaotic uh, freedom where sure you can do anything, but that that is actually a kind of hell. Um, the drug addict is free in the sense that he is able to, he, is, he, is, he has ignored the rules of not doing drugs, but he has ironically then found himself enslaved to, uh, to drugs. Um, admittedly an extreme example, but still. Um, where Dave Bentley Hart and then David Foster Wallace would also chime in uh, to say that true freedom, the freedom uh, of uh, being able to commit to something, the, uh, the freedom that comes with restricting yourselves in certain ways uh, to to pursue the uh, pursue what David Bentley Hart would say would be kind of the ideal good, but then for David Foster Wallace would be to pursue whatever meta-narrative kind of you have committed yourself to. So I did actually really enjoy uh, Miguel Chris. Uh, discussion around that and the boredom one but who knows we'll maybe talk walker percy later i gotta do my greatest grace hit smash up nice um yeah i uh page 334 sorry 334 uh he talks about descartes representationalism coming back to consume his own emo uh ego and uh i was definitely seeing some connections to c.s lewis's abolition of man argument where as you conquer nature nature slowly conquers you you know you, you take control into your own hands but you're still letting nature decide how to use that control um so there's a lot of stuff like that in this chapter where like i will disagree with every argument he makes and then agree on the conclusion and that that rooted me out the whole time you could say it was uncanny hey there we go yeah no i i literally wrote in in my notes too that the abolition of man and the inevitable victory of nature where you know nature is the world where we divide it into categories but end up conquering and enslaving ourselves in the same in the same movement um yeah so one thing that i would say i i, I think that i like uh, or, or that i appreciate despite the fact that i'm pretty sure we're, we're about to go into trying to tear it to pieces is um specifically the sort of the counter argument to the default utilitarian view of the world that obviously is sort of underlies so many things and sort of particularly for the argumentative subgroups that I found myself in I I think the sort of over the past couple of years growing to appreciate the importance of metaphor and sort of sacrament and that whole area of life is something that I was not aware of my world was much shallower than that so it's it's something that I'm trying to f- figure out how to how to work with but he does some some good work um, in, you know, starting me down the inevitable path towards monarchism. So, uh, you know, I appreciate the, the chapter for that. Good stuff. All right. Now, now we can, we can go just completely free and, uh, yep. free Nick, Nick, you are, you are weapons free, uh, all guns fire. <laughs> okay. Um, so I'm actually going to go back up to the preface, uh, and the introduction where he talks about some of his methodology, um, and sort of what that means for the rest of the book. And the thing here is, I have read a lot of overambitious psychology theories. And that's that's where his ethos is. That's where he's trying to ground himself. Is like, hey guys, I've done 20 years of neuroscience. Uh, you got to listen to me when I talk about brain stuff. And the thing about old researchers is that they get pet ideas and then everything looks like a nail after that and uh you can like trace these fads in in psychology and therapy too um you know a conference happens with a really cool idea so like we had like trauma-centered therapy earlier trauma-informed therapy 
And then a couple conferences later was like, all right, everyone now needs to learn acceptance and commitment therapy uh, and, and so on and so forth. There was a big thing over uh, mirror neurons, um, this idea that you have these neurons that fire when you see someone else doing the same thing. Uh, so if I see you running, then the, I'm going to be simulating running in my own head with these neurons that are sort of like a shadow underneath my actual actions. And the idea is like, oh, man, maybe these things underlie empathy. Maybe they help you uh, learn skills, that model skills, whatever. Uh, the problem is we found them in monkeys, and we've never found direct evidence of them in humans. There's there's things like learning, which humans do, but we don't need mirror neurons to learn. It's not necessary for the you know the action to happen. Uh, but for a couple of years, just like there was a book that said, like, I can explain all of human social interaction with mirror neurons. And, and it was nothing. We have never found the evidence. And that's basically what it comes down to in psych is, is you have this big uh, convoluted theory that explains everything. And the fact that it explains everything is actually kind of your warning sign because it's, uh, you know, psychology is a really difficult science. And people are going to talk about how, like, we do random controlled studies, you know, we, we control for variables. but it's ultimately not like physics where you can get really precise measurements. Um, everything in, sci uh, in psychology that's studied is what's called a construct. It's, it is invented. We find a way to measure it, and then we do stuff that that's, you know, supposedly causes it. But the whole thing is conjectural from the beginning. It's not like an atom where like can get an objective measurement of how many times it wiggles per second. Um, so if I can jump in just there real, real sure. briefly. Granting the, let's say we, we grant the strongest version of the initial uh, thing thing that you've brought up and, and McGilchrist is you know very much entirely off base um it is incredibly it would be incredibly ironic that our book about massive meta narrative is undermined by the uh replication crisis in psychology yeah, yeah. that would be sublime <laughs> Well, um, so that's that's kind of where I'm getting at, actually, because um, his defense against accusations of cherry picking, which like reading this chapter, I can see why people made that accusation, um, is that he's done a lot of research and he's picked the best evidence for the thing. And reading the introduction, I was absolutely willing to take him at face value for that. He, he said a couple of things that was just like, actually, this does hold up. You know, my skepticism of your theory is unwarranted. But then we get to this chapter and my skepticism is right back with a vengeance because like, let me let me look through some of my notes here. Um, so he talks about uh, some guy called Vico talking about the barbarism of reflection because we realized that uh, mirrors were a bad thing because they're, they're left brain. Um, so I looked up that phrase. Um, Vico was advancing a cyclical theory of history. He said, we began in barbarism and we will end in barbarism. And uh, when he says barbarism is reflection, he's not talking about the left brain. He's not talking about thinking. He's talking about everybody disregarding societal norms so they can focus on what benefits them personally. And he says that society is going to collapse because of that. That's that's not at all what uh, what McGilchrist is talking about. And then okay. we can go down. Um, he brings in Jane Austen's Emma. Um, Emma is a work of like social commentary in Victorian England. Uh, and if you look at the passage provided, uh, what, what we see is Emma is like, I'm going to go out and have a party in the backyard and we'll pick strawberries and we'll run around. And then, um, you know, an adult figure tells Emma, Emma's a, a young girl, I looked this up on Wikipedia, uh, that no, we're going to have a party inside like normal people do. Um, and it, when you're done playing out on the outside, then you'll come back and your food will be cold. And it's, although she says, like, uh, I think it's right and natural to be indoors, it's very clear that she's just, like, appropriating what Emma said to put her in her place. It's a, it's a social thing. It's, she's not making a commentary on nature. She's just being really, like, you know, she's, she's clapping back. Um, to, to your first point, yep, I'm with you. It sounds like that quote was taken pretty out of context. Even a charitable mm -hmm. attempt at saving Miguel Chris, I think, would, would fall pretty fl uh, flat. But concerning <laughs> Emma, I mean, 
something something under the like under this uh under the hood could it be that whatever left hemisphere right hemisphere conflict was informing Austin's writing of that book. And so even though it is simply manifesting itself as the conversation between, I'm not sure, is it mother-daughter or... But conversation between two characters, it's still a manifestation of that conflict. Um, yes, and that's kind of the problem, is everything here it could be, you know, if we if we really read into it. But it's kind of like... I don't know, I get really angry about uh, postmodern readings of, of old texts where they're just of, I'm going to deconstruct this and show that this is actually like a, a bourgeoisie communism class conflict. And it's kind of like, no, it's not because those ideas didn't exist back then. The author had no idea of doing that. And then they say, well, the author is dead. I can say whatever about this. But it's like, okay, at that point, you're not interpreting the text. You're, you're telling a different story about it. You're, you're just playing word games. Um, true, true enough, but if he is saying that left brain, right brain conflicts on a societal level, are in it is how you think, it is how you interpret the world, and therefore, of course, it's going to manifest itself in in art, in literature, in architecture, in blah blah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Like that, it's possible, but that's not how science is done. Um, and I I get that maybe he's trying to embrace more of a right brain model where you know you draw connections and you form a more intuitive picture to to build up these ideas in more of an experienced way. And you know more power to him because not many people do that, and it's it's really hard to do. And I would say this is why, because the reason why we adopted this this left brain thinking is because it's adaptive for science. We need to be precise about when we're coming up with conclusions. If you want to say this is true, in science, it's not about we prove that this is true. What we say is we prove that the alternative hypotheses are not significant explainers. Um, and McGilchrist doesn't do that. He tells us a story, and then he brings in a lot of evidence that. The connection is kind of tenuous. Like, uh, again, I have 20 more of these if you want to keep going. We can debate them line by line. But the point is, if they're all sketchy and they all slightly point in this direction, that doesn't make a very strong case for your argument, especially when you're not addressing anything else. Yeah, and that's um, where you get into conspiracy theory territories where that uh, take which any conspiracy schizophrenic thing. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, like take any conspiracy theory online and they'll always have an explanation tentative. Uh, rickety, but they'll always have some sort of reason why, no, this obvious counter-argument doesn't work, because insert a bunch of rickety counter-arguments that, that form this web that, on the whole, seems strong, but when you start looking at any one particular piece, it starts falling apart. Right, exactly. Uh, you know, So we get to the guy where his claim is he found the best historical evidence for his case. And then he does things like present the fact that the uh, inventor of eyeglasses had God have mercy on his sins on his tombstone. Like, oh, you think that they would not have written that on the tombstone of a Christian dead person if he had not invented eyeglasses? Is that really your evidence? This is the best you could come up with? Um, I definitely raised my eyebrows on that one. Yeah, so, um, yeah, basically, he's, he's doing a lot of wink, wink, nudge, nudge, and asking us to fill in the connections ourselves, which, uh, you know, maybe that's what he has to do to, to think in a right-brain way. But it doesn't make for a compelling argument. And it also doesn't pay attention to any sort of alternative hypothesis. Um, I, I, would, I looked at the, the chapter on the Reformation, for example, to see if he even mentioned the printing press, which is generally considered to be like a really huge thing with the Reformation. Like, but he's just talking about how, you know, the left brain uh, caused people to destroy icons and put words in their place because words are more left brain. And I'm like, maybe that wasn't viable until your peasants were, were you know, literate. 
Boo. <laughs> it was a mistake. We all know it was a mistake to let the peasants learn how to read. But we okay, sure, M- mistake, whatever. But like, it was a historically contingent thing, and and you're attributing to left right brain action what can also be explained by really obvious historical causes. Uh, later on, like we talked about, like the dismembering uh, mm-hmm. and people doing art of dismembered bodies, and you can say that oh, the you know the left hemisphere has gotten to decide what kind of art is in the newspapers during the French Revolution because it's it's won the dominus contest. Or maybe people are getting decapitated in the streets every day, and art reflects life. You know. Yep. Yeah. I I'm actually now now that you mentioned it, I so I didn't actually read the uh, the section on the Reformation something something grad school. Um. I so for the record, I did read this this section. I did summarize. I'm not just completely making stuff up. Um. I I I am a little bit surprised at that, especially given that you would think that the printing press would if anything bolster his case given that the 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 printed word he contends is more left brain than right brain um right brain is music left brain is uh, prose he he said at uh, at the beginning of part 2 so that's actually really kind of surprising that he wouldn't even mention that um all in addition to the fact that that's also a huge societal mover i yeah. mean i don't i i might be misremembering the reformation chapter but i don't think that's a kind con- like Stephen said, I don't think that contradicts his argument necessarily. It's so, so let's say that the argument was um, that uh, you know the left the left hemisphere would prefer to substitute words for um, for icons for for images, right? And the printing press demonstrably enables that. It's not a you know, or rather, it would almost be a that would almost bolster his case. So it, it's more surprising that that he would leave it out, right? Because you can't have the mass. R- replacement of images by abstract words unless you have something like the printing press so i mean i don't i i I think his argument would just be that you know it's an it's an enabling factor but there's you know without the left hemisphere there's not a necessary connection in between adoption of the written word as your primary medium and and the destruction of images but the fact that we have both suggests that they're competing which goes back to his hypothesis i i think the alternative would be that the it it wasn't a left brain right brain paradigm conflict that was that was coming into being it was maybe you could argue words were just objectively better or objectively preferred and so when people had a massive uh, or when people had more access to them they just chose the former or they chose words over image which sure mcgilchrist would say is a left brain right brain conflict but you could also say it was just a you could have the explanation of well it's just a sociological phenomenon yeah so the way i see it he's got two theses the the first is uh the left brain and the right brain have separate functions and they do what he says they do um and on that thesis like i think his the, the presentation of the evidence in chapter two was very well done and it, it makes for a compelling theory um, his second thesis is that this is the primary uh, driving force behind the development of all human civilization. And he needs to show, to make that thesis work, that it indeed caused it, not that, ooh, we can see the hallmarks of the left brain here. Because remember, to, to show that it caused it, what you have to show is that the other factors, that you know, because things are multivariate, right, were not the, the primary determinant of what happened. Um, and so, you know, he goes into just like the anger of the French Revolution was directed against the kings and the priests. Well, okay, uh, but also this was a time of unprecedented uh, extraction of, of value by the state, which caused like increased and in, in, uh, extreme levels of economic misery for the peasants at that time. Um, so, you know, you can say maybe my left brain is driving me to destroy you because you're a metaphor for awe and metaphor. 
Uh, or you could say, you're the bastard who let my child starve because you took money for the king's armies. You know, one of those is going to be a lot more direct of an explanation for that behavior. And the fact that he's, he's reaching so far to make a very total explanation using this left brain, right brain is one of the hallmarks of a, a you know an old researcher with a, a hammer that everything looks like a nail to. It's also, ironically enough, a hallmark of a distinctly left brain approach where you start <laughs> exactly. you develop one particular theory. Which, interestingly enough, he did address this at the very intro where he said, like, this is going to look like this. But that's also kind of the ex post facto Trumpian hand wave where you say, hey, this is going to, like, I know that this is going to be a counter-argument, but... And then you just proceed to not ever... You've gotten way too much mileage out of that phrase. Oh, I'm going to use it again uh, when he when he talks about Descartes and uh, and uh, Bentham, but uh, it's it's such a good phrase. It's just so applicable to so many areas. Um, uh, so, and I, from reading some amount of commentary online, um, it seems that that's where he's crit- criticized the most. Um, people don't seem to have a whole lot to say about the first half. It's just the second half where they start saying... Okay, dude, you're you're kind of making some pretty far-reaching claims. Which, I mean, it's funny because I I haven't really gotten that sense until this chapter, and it was in this chapter where a lot of his stuff was just like, dude, you are you are not making a good case here. And in the Enlightenment, I th- I thought for sure that that was the that was going to be the gimme. Yeah, yeah. So I, I I mean I I think I would be slightly less critical um, than you, Nick, of or maybe I would be less critical because I would phrase his the second half of his thesis um phrase it less strongly because i don't think he he ever i might be wrong but i don't think he would say it's the primary cause because the he demonstrates throughout that the you know balance of power um culturally between right hemisphere and left hemisphere is contingent on other factors as well you know like you said it's it's multivariate and sort of i guess maybe your degree your degree of thinking that he's overstating his case entirely depends on how strong you think uh he's making an argument and i will also agree with steven that up until this chapter which i think is the weakest of the ones that we've read so far um he's done a decent job of constraining his argument but in this one it was sort of a lot grass like for example um you know i'm have vague interactions experience with french revolution versus american revolution arguments it's a classic back and forth that people love to have it's like oh talk about the french revolution and american revolution and they're two different types of enlightenment two different types of rationality uh they're very different one is good one is bad you know uh, even talking about gardens, like French gardens, there you make everything symmetrical. Everything is a square or a circle. It's entirely manicured and controlled versus English gardens. And English gardens are the good ones because you more or less let the plants grow free. You just sort of constrain them, but you more or less let them have their natural shapes and you enjoy that. And those are two, and those and those are shown as, you know, here are the two different types types of enlightenment rationality, constrained and and unconstrained or, you know, controlling and permissive. Um, but he just sort of, vacuums over this and it's like yeah so like french revolution bad which i'm like sure okay got me and then american revolution less bad but also capitalism and then we're done it's like what no you 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 kind of skipped over this whole very rich uh realm of debate that yeah so well and also his his criticism of descartes and bentham pretty much consisted entirely of ad hominems he pretty much just said, haha, look at Descartes and how silly he is. He sounds like a schizophrenic. It's like, dude, he was doing a thought experiment that just simply involved what sort of axioms can I take to be absolute sure and then tries to build up from there, which, yeah, I, I, I'm totally willing to buy that. He was falling into a left 
brain mode of thinking, dot, dot, dot. But I mean, he was also a mathematician that was also just looking for a set of axioms from which to build his philosophy, which is a very mathematical approach to philosophy, but not necessarily a bad one. Um, it's It just seemed that he was taking Descartes, uh, he was reading Descartes in very bad faith. And I just wasn't a huge fan of how he just kind of discounted him. I, yeah, hilariously enough, he, he even has a, a quote where he says, my purpose here is not to discount Descartes. And then he just proceeds to be like, that's, that's the ex post facto Trumpian hand wave that I, I mentioned, you know, three seconds ago. Uh, it, like, I'm not going to discount Descartes, but I'm going to just discount him. And he does the same exact thing with Bentham, where he clearly didn't like the philosophy Bentham produced, and that's fine. But he just spent a page and a half just kind of insulting the guy and calling him a socially awkward nerd. It's just like, where was this like hardcore philosophy science researcher that we saw in chapter or in chapter like three when he was going over the phenomenologists um you're, so. you're not doing deep reflective philosophy you're mentally ill and have lots of free time <laughs> the interesting thing about that is uh we actually do have a large group of people who intentionally attempt to dissociate themselves from their perceptions and even their sense of self and they're called buddhists and uh you know their meditation practices have been imported into western mental health because they help you be a better more integrated person um that's actually a very solid point so the if we said like descartes was acting like a buddhist rather than descartes was acting like a schizophrenic it would be equally true perhaps more so uh but have a very different tone of the argument i i think i would almost go so far as to say equally true and equally irrelevant um because something something ad hominem you're saying something interesting about the person don't tell me about the person tell me about his ideas like argue his ideas if you're trying to diagnose him as a schizophrenic fair enough i guess i'm you're gonna you have a very long way to go to convince me but you're the neuropsychologist so fair enough but he didn't even seem to want to go that far i wonder if uh because his argument is actually that you know thinking in a particular way has effects for you like mm -hmm. the, the way you think is going to influence how you how you live and how you act um so to some degree he will have to dip into ad hominem because he needs to show the the cause and effect between style of thought and and living hmm. okay that's, that's well, actually so an interesting point yeah so, so so like i i think this is the the steel man version of, of of his argument let's say which is to say that one he talks from the beginning that schizophrenia is a modern disease it's it's not something that exists throughout history is it, his contention and that it's reflective of a particular pattern of of thought a, a, it's a way of of hyper rationalization of dissociation of um being entirely disembodied and so his argument about descartes which he probably says in more polemical terms than is necessary would would just be that descartes is on in a smaller way doing the normalizing these patterns of thought that are the same patterns of thought when taken to a further extreme the the patterns of schizophrenia um and so why would you want to base your philosophical enterprise around something that you know has the tinge of madness from you know fruit of the poisonous tree that's hmm. it, it is would you say that that's a sort of careful what thought patterns you fall into because you may actually end up be i mean i don't think he would say that you would become schizophrenic but rather you are going to start falling into those uh into those sort of ways of thinking something like that i i mean if you want to get super technical about it say you have one million followers of descartes some x percentage of them will double down on descartes and fall you know following his logic, fall in, into schizophrenia, whereas one million people who don't follow Descartes will not fall into that particular uh, pattern of, of mental illness because they don't have the concepts available to them. 
Hmm. Point of order. Um, Descartes talks about people having particular delusions, which uh, Miguel Chris says are symptomatic of uh, schizophrenia. So wouldn't that mean then that schizophrenics were contemporaries of Descartes and Descartes can't be the cause of them? If so, I mean, I'm, I'm not a psychologist person, but I would say the answers in your question, delusions are symptomatic of schizophrenia, but not the totality. And also delusions can come from several sources. They're not, it's not entirely schizophrenics, aren't the only people who have delusions and everyone who has delusions is not a schizophrenic. So, I mean, people, uh, McGilchrist's reply would simply be, yes, people have had delusions forever. Wow, I almost said something uh, very instinctive that I should not say. Uh, but uh, so people have had delusions forever, um, but they've only had delusions in this particular way relatively recently. Hmm. Well, I have to say for, for my research experience, I've mostly focused on like frontal lobe stuff. So that's the part of the schizophrenic that I focus on is like the, you know, the, the lack of inhibition or, or the inability to engage with their set goals. Uh, that's, I'm sure he knows his stuff better than me on this point, though, because my uh, I've mostly worked as a practitioner and not a researcher. Yeah, that that is still the, kind of the the frustrating point that we all uh, here at the problem of reading have fo- found ourselves. Um, yeah, we just kind of we just kind of have to take this guy's word for a lot of stuff. It's just, and this one he is starting to it. I think maybe it's he is starting to venture out of his realm of he's clearly obviously he is a brilliant neuroscientist. And then clearly, from reading through his his treatise on the phenomenologists, he clearly has some amount of either formal philosophical training, or at the very least, he is very familiar with this. It, I wonder if it's he's actually really bad, or maybe not really bad, but he's not great at historical inquiry. Here's your answer, guys. He was originally an English major, and then he became a neurosurgeon. So this is his English major writing this 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 chapter. And in English, you don't have to prove anything, link anything, or do anything real, real, frankly, all respects to my wife, who's an English master's person. But, you know, it's it's kind of, well, all fields are made up in, in some way. But let's just say some fields are more made up than others. McIntyre's uh, criticism on sociology is coming to mind. Oof. Oof. Well, he did not sense. like sociologists. I, I can imagine, yeah. Um, well, this kind of makes sense because the like the, the fact that he forgot to include the printing press, despite that it was like one of the most major events of that time period, and completely supports his argument. Um, like a competent historian would have—that's the first place they would have gone. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he ignores or rides over it, he says that this was a time of the power of words. I think was his phrase. And it's like, okay, buddy, but you know, you have a, a good kill shot here, and you're not using it. So it, it kind of throws into doubt his thing that, oh, I'm using the best evidence out of this huge uh, evidence base. It's kind of like, I, the really obvious example is not being used, so why not? Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's definitely true. Steven, did you have your one last thing? I, I, I did. I guess we'll, we'll end on a, a sort of positive note. Uh, one of the other things I actually did really like uh, that he brought up was boredom. Uh, the idea of boredom being a passive view of the world. Uh, we are passive recipients consuming the world as content, in essence. Um, and I think there's actually kind of a fun interplay on words you can have with content and content. Um, but that's perhaps for another time for someone who has more skill in that than I do. Um, but so Walker Percy, another one of my, my favorite uh, writers, uh, he brings up the fact that boredom doesn't enter our language until the 18th century and that no one knows its etymology, uh, that it ostensibly comes from the French bourrier, which means to stuff. And so he has this really cool turn of phrase where uh, he says, boredom is the self stuffed with the self. 
Um, and I just, I, I really did like the idea of, uh, I don't know, it, it just another philosophical interpretation of boredom. I've never, even with, after having read Walker Percy on boredom, I never thought of kind of the philosophy of boredom. And so him having a, you know, quick half page uh, philosophical uh, investigation into philosophy of boredom was, was I, I actually thought was pretty solid. I kind of wish he had gone more into it, if anything. That was another, <laughs> I guess, maybe not entirely ending on a positive note, because that was another thing that I was really frustrated with this chapter. It seemed that for this, this chapter was pretty short compared to a lot of his other ones. And it seemed that there, he had, he had so much content that he just glazed right over. And it's like, dude, you could have gone on this for another two or three pages at least. I wonder now I want to see something um, boredom as sloth and analyzing that in terms of sloth is like slackness of spirit. I feel like that would be an, an excellent essay. Uh, but speaking of excellent essays, Nick, guest on the pod, first time uh, participant, long time listener, has an article for us entitled The Battle of Helm's Deep, Part 8, The Mind of Sauron. And uh, Nick, do you want to just like tell us just like two seconds about where this article comes from and uh, the writer of the article? Because this guy is kind of the coolest. Yeah, so uh, this is from a collection of unmitigated pedantry. Um, it is a uh, public-facing historian blog by a dude named Brett Devereaux. Um, and he has a lot of thoughts on what it means to keep the public historically informed and whatnot. So uh, the way he does this is he likes to take pop culture stuff and then talk about the historical accuracy of it. Uh, dude's a military historian, uh, mostly focusing on like, classical Rome kind of a deal. Uh, but because that's where most of our fantasy wants to go anyways, that, that era, that level of technology, it's pretty great. Um, so he's done series on Game of Thrones, on uh, Battlestar Galactica. Um, he's just getting into the Europa Universalis games. And uh, this particular one comes from his analysis of the Battle of Helm's Deep. Um, now, there, uh, you know, part eight, it's, it's a pretty long series. But in this particular one, The Mind of Saruman, he's talking about the uh, strategic realities uh, of... Saruman situation and how Saruman completely messed all of it up. Um, or as he keeps saying, Saruman was a dum-dum. So basically uh, he goes into Clausewitz, uh, who's uh, apparently just one of the key figures in military history. This is not my field. Um, and Clausewitz divides military history or just military stuff into three levels. Um, you got your tactics. It's kind of like your battlefield stuff. People moving around the battlefield, shooting at each other. Um, the next one up is operations. That's making sure that your army is at the right time, at the right place at the right time. They have the food, they have the equipment they need. And then the last one is strategy, which is uh, the goals that you have and then how you're achieving those goals, which may include the decision not to fight at all. Uh, he, he points out that there's a lot of games sold as like real-time strategy, but they don't actually have the decision to make or not include, uh, uh, to, to, to make or not make peace. Um, and as a result, they're really real-time tactics games. Um, so we, we basically go through everything, and he, he builds this picture of Saruman, who, I mean, this, this was, it was intentional by Tolkien, is his argument, that Saruman is really bad at this, because Tolkien has examples of competent generals in the Lord of the Rings, and uh, Saruman does not do what they do. Um, but basically, Saruman has a couple things going on. Um, he has a, this is going to sound really familiar to you guys, too, um, he has a goal to, uh, quote, have power, power to order all things as we will, for that good which only the wise can see. To achieve the high and ultimate purpose, knowledge, rule, order, all the things we have striven so far in vain to accomplish, hindered rather than helped by our weak or idle friends. Um, so, you know, guess which side of the brain is uh, operating Saruman's mind, huh? Uh, but basically, to do this, Saruman builds this really clockwork plan where if anything goes wrong, he is just screwed. Um, he sends orcs after the One Ring. 
or we're accepted one ring, I suppose. Uh, and Saruman is absolutely going to turn on him if he knows that Saruman has even attempted this because he's like, oh, you're, you're going to fire ring. So um, Saruman, first of all, paints these orcs with his national emblem. And uh, that, that doesn't work out so well. And uh, doesn't tell them what they're after. They think they need to get hobbits, but in fact, they need to get a ring. And then he has no way of knowing what they succeed. And this is important because his other thing he's trying to do is conquer Rohan. Um, he is trying to neutralize Rohan with Wormtongue. This is kind of like a psyop. Um, but then he also sends orcs after Theodred to kill him because Theodred's one of the leaders in the country who, you know, uh, supposed, uh, try, proposed, what's the word? Reportedly? Um, he, he wants war with Isengard. Um, promotes there we go uh and he does this not thinking of his overall goal which is that he might not want to go to war with rohan if you send your troops after uh theodred and you know they recover again armor marked with your national emblem then rohan's like okay you know we were worried about whether to go to war with this guy but this makes it pretty clear we should just take him out um and uh, the problem with this is that uh, if you're trying to bank on the the, the good guys winning uh, and, and taking out Sauron, then you're going to want to keep Rohan in a, a state of peace for as long as you can, because uh, you know after Gondor beats Sauron, then they come up and then they, together they and Rohan crush you. Um, if you're planning on the bad guys winning, then maybe don't betray Sauron for the ring. Um, or if you do, uh, make sure that you keep Rohan alive and allied, and then like fight him with the, the good guys so that uh, the, the good guys can remain your ally and be like a buffer state between you and Sauron. Uh, but instead, Saruman's just sort of like, I can do this all at once because absolutely nothing will go wrong. There's that optimism of the left brain. Um, and uh, as a result, uh, he, he just is, is massively overconfident and, and doesn't really know what he's doing. But the thing is, this is a really realistic portrayal. This is the computer programmer who thinks that he's really good at programming. And if everybody else will let him take over society, which, by the way, is Saruman's explicit goal, then he can do it better than everybody else. But in fact, that is not what Saruman can do. Uh, Saruman messes everything up, and then he, he dies because of his foolishness. Um, he's, he's overthrown. And so um, Gandalf's role changes here, too. Uh, in, in the movies, Gandalf is there like seeking information, but uh, in the books, Gandalf is one of the wise, and he calls Saruman a fool, and he says, you should not be doing this. Like, change your plans, come back to the side of wisdom. Uh, whereas in the movies, uh, he lets Saruman tempt Theoden to get information, and the books, he already has all the information. He knows that Theoden will reject it, and he's hoping that when, when Theoden tells him that uh, he's, he's not going to turn, that it will humble Saruman, and Saruman can be redeemed. It was a mission of mercy, not uh, like an espionage kind of a thing. Um, so, yeah, it's just a really cool one, and uh, helps illustrate some aspects of the books that I didn't understand when I read them in high school. So, And I do want to say, Nick is not um, uh, underselling this at all. Like, this is super-duper in-depth. Like, all the stuff about Gandalf in particular, and his role, and, his, and the difference between his role and the movies was so... I don't know, very in, in, enlightening as to, um, you know, just like almost you could say like the difference of possible vision between Peter Jackson and J.R.R. Tolkien in just that almost he like can't conceptualize someone like Gandalf uh, and, and playing the sort of wise role that he is like he has to be like a schemer like everyone else. Uh, and and uh, yeah, oh, and and also the other uh, two things about this article was um, one, he makes an excellent decision tree of all of the possible outcomes of all the different uh, strategic decisions that Saruman can make. That's excellent, uh, and like you know, seven 
well, probably, I forget how many there, but like, you know, 15 of 16 and in total defeat and destruction. And one is the golden way out that Saruman, you know, is just crossing his fingers and hoping happens. Um, and then the, and then the other thing is I read down into the comments and there are like, I, the best one that I found was uh, this PhD student who was like, hey, can I use like the way that you've structured these multi-level realms of operations or whatever for my PhD thesis? And it was like, ah, anyway, great. Good stuff. Yeah, I'll I'll definitely uh, second slash third that. Um, yeah, fantastic art. Uh, and this is uh, from the part eight. Uh, that that should be an indicator. This is uh, one part of a very long series of both uh, two towers and um, uh, Return of the King. Uh, in the Battle of Minas yeah, 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 exactly. Um, and he does a fantastic job talking. Like I, I learned a ton about. I don't know, just. Uh, pre uh, pre gunpowder warfare and the idea of it being about morale, not about weapons. Um, that if you can, it, pretty much both armies are in a constant state of uh, trying to keep their men calm and secure and not retreat because the army and, and just the idea of two armies being constantly in this game of chicken, where it's yeah, if we can just get and it kind of get you to fall first, we'll. I don't know. It was just it, absolutely fascinating and viewing the books through that lens. Oh, just absolutely superb! It makes me want to go read the read the books again. And also, I I do love the idea of Sarman actually just kind of exhibiting way too much left brain behavior, unwillingness to uh, to think outside the box or to reexamine your priorities. Uh, this irrational optimism, yeah, that's that's also fantastic. Yeah, it's like I I've known people like Sarman, and uh, there's this uh, group in the Bay Area called the, the they call themselves the Rationalists, um, and they're they're very much like this kind of a thing where they have very very logical, very sort of adrift from actual experience beliefs. Um, that's uh, my fiance uh, has one of them on her Facebook feed that she's always complaining to me to be uh, complaining to me about because he'll ask questions about like really basic life experience things and just like oh like what would it be like if uh, I don't know it's, I can't think of any good examples now but uh, what would it be like if I dated a girl oh. <laughs> Uh, there was one where, like, he started asking about, like, "Hey, I just want to educate myself on, uh, you know, bio like like biology, so that I can like double check my doctor's decisions about me." Um, and it was kind of like you realize that there's a way to do that, and it's to go to school for multiple years. It's not that schools are like inefficient, and the idea that you can just teach yourself enough biology or like understand the context that occurs in uh, is it's really arrogant and it's kind of ludicrous, but. Um, you know, there were people in the comments, other rationalists who, who purporting to explain the, the uh, like, understand this. And it's like, oh, yeah, well, it's basically just chemistry. So just build up from there. Uh, so uh, she shows this theory with uh, someone who's actually a doctor in her social circle. And he says, like, what, you're going to model it all the way down there? That's completely useless. Uh, but they don't have the, the, the experience. It's not contextualized for them. I just got to say, if you ever see, like, rationalist in the dating uh, bio, instant swipe left. No way. Absolutely <laughs> not. Huge, huge red flag. Um, oh, I had something there. And I forgot what it was. Darn. Uh, Lord of the Rings. Cohesion and warfare. Cohesion and warfare. Morale versus weapon systems. Peter Jackson. San Francisco. Yeah, yeah. Bay All Area. That. Rationalists. Dating. Yudkowsky just got divorced. Who? The head honcho rationalist. Never mind. You, you said you knew the term. So, uh, oh, I guess no, 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 no. I just, I, I don't have to know more than I know now. Oh uh, yeah, no. There's a there's a lot of drama. No, it was it was for reasons different than you think. Uh, his his wife turned out to be uh, trans. Ah, so well, he he posted this very long involved. Uh, I'm I'm looking for another partner, and here's what to expect. And it was basically like, um, I need emotional support. I can't give you any emotional support, but I can pay you. <laughs> 
not uh it was like he said provide uh, emotional or sorry provide like uh, financial assistance i think was a particular one it's like if you want to relocate um i mean you know take take a rational view of right and, and that's like, the thing like like you got yeah that works uh, oh. like, you go through the thought processes of this and then it's like um you know here are my requirements and i'm just going to let you know what they are so i don't waste your time you can rationally decide to be with me or not um, and I'll, I'll let you know all the pros and cons that so you can make an informed decision because rationality is the highest virtue. And, and mm -hmm. I just assume that this is best for everybody. And the fact that it happens in complete ignorance of actual human interaction or, or social conventions, uh, it's, it's problematic. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, everything is just, yeah, reduced to, uh, to contracts. And I mean, well, so the other thing, uh, oh, no, I, I, I remember what what I was going to say, uh, which is that um, we did a Lord of the Rings themed episode um, a while back and sort of the feature article I think was um, uh, a talk uh, given, I, I believe by Tolkien. Um, and he was talking about just like looking at like 19, I don't know, 70, shortly before he died, something like that. Um, and the modern world that, that he was surveying and that there aren't any Saurons. There aren't Saurons in the world. There aren't big bads sort of, you know, evil for evil's sake out there in the world for us to fight. Not not really a thing uh, so much anymore. But there are Saramons, and he sees many Saramons who are, the, you know, the controlling, technocratic, rationalistic, I can know, or I can know, you know, by posting on Facebook and asking my other rationalist friends who, you know, probably contain the, you know, total sum of human knowledge, give or take, like, you know, um, and, you know, know it in an afternoon and have the sufficient uh, rationalistic willpower to rule everyone else. Brave new world. To attain that good that only the wise can see. Mm. Indeed. Well, speaking of a brave new world, uh, the world that we live in is full of things that uh, make us angry. And when one is angry, one tends to rant. Stephen, have you a rant for us? I do indeed, and my rant is group projects. Group projects are the source of all human misery, I think. Um, Communism, fascism, yeah, giant group projects gone terribly awry. Precisely. And even if you go back to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve had a group project of not eating the apple, and look where it got us. Look where it got us. So I uh, had a, uh, a, a group, uh, and to be fair, the project, unlike a lot of so-called group projects, this project was actually big enough and actually had the structure that ostensibly you could split this up into uh three distinct categories of work and it all work out and the maximum group size was three i ended up on a group where uh pretty much one person did zero work and i'll leave names i'll leave as many identifiers out as i can but this this individual did absolutely nothing but the other person who to their credit did plenty of work uh was rather good friends with this individual and uh made any sort of uh complaining or whatnot kind of just off the cards and so in essence i ended up with most of the work do doing pretty much all of the coding and some of the writing and it was a very frustrating experience and group projects are just just don't do group projects in academics ever unless maybe it's in like a professional research we're all writing a paper to a journal and therefore but even then i'm not optimistic when it comes to that i'm not optimistic about co-authoring a, a paper it just sounds like a bad idea uh, while we won't mention these individuals names we will put their names descriptions and addresses in the comments hashtag doxing <laughs> 
Uh, all right. Uh, so for 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 my rant. Um, uh, so my uh, lovely wife was flying back to DC Sunday night uh, from Atlanta. It's like a one hour flight, hour twenty, and some birds decided to do a group project of flying directly in front of the plane uh, to to bring it down, and they managed to. Uh, crack the front windshield, just leaving this giant bloody crack in the windshield of this plane, force them to land, get a new plane, and then uh, finally make it back to DC, you know, several hours after schedule. And, you know, like, we just have to stop birds, all right? Like, I I know that I've spoken against veganism and that it's nature versus us, and either we kill and eat the animals or they'll kill and eat us, and it's just like, you just got to do it. Like, there's no way around it, but, like, we really got to get on this this bird problem. I mean, cause like these birds, like, you know, caused a 4.5 hour delay. She's getting in, you know, at like three, 4 AM on what's supposed to be a one hour flight getting in, you know, four hours earlier. And they had to do a different airport, like 45 minutes away. And like, no, see, here's the thing. You can see how the birds work. Cause it, it, it's strategic because what they did is they gave my, my wife, you know, two hours of sleep before she goes to teach middle schoolers, the future of this country. And, you know, future meat consumers who will be the end of, you know, innumerable birds in their lifetime. But now their education has been sabotaged by these birds uh, by, you know, ruining my, my, my wife's sleep. Uh, so all that said, uh, birds, I would like to flip you my own bird. Cheers. Well, you know, birds aren't real. Well, I, I mean, see, but like, like, that's the whole thing, right? Like it's both like, oh, it's so frustrating. Yes. Yeah. No, I'm 100% with you. Yep. No, uh, bird watching goes both ways. Research bird surveillance listeners. Yes, yeah, there's some great Instagram pages to follow. Nick, have you a rant for us? Um, I do, and the thing I want to rant about is serial web fiction. And, you know, it's a really petty thing to rant about because it's free to read. There's a lot of, like, passion going into it, but the community is, they're, they're not edifying themselves, and it's going to be a problem. So, uh, for context, there's a bunch of people who put stuff up on the, the, the internet. It used to be, like, blogs, WordPress kind of blogs, and then, you know, they'd write your a chapter a couple times a week, and then you read it. It's great. Um, and then, you know, sites started popping up. So you have like archive of our own, you have uh, Royal Road, whatever. And uh, it used to be that people would write uh, things with plots, things that required effort. Um, but it's recently become apparent that you can do a really low effort version and do what's called a lit RPG, which is to say you take the mechanics of a video game and you put it into a story so that characters are like literally receiving experience and leveling up and gaining new skills, whatever. Um, there is interesting narrative space to explore with that like homestuck kind of did that but uh notably homestuck didn't focus on the mechanics so much it was just part of the aesthetic of the background um there are now stories where literally the entire point is just power leveling you know the the, the main character is essentially a murder hobo going through the the author's world and, and just constantly leveling up and then people read for this and it, there, there's no story going on there's no craft um, and and uh, there's a related uh, there's a problem called uh, Jansha, or I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's a uh, it's a genre that came over from China where people are, are you know constantly medicating uh, sorry medi- yeah, medicating to but also meditating to increase their their chi pools and and to become more powerful and learn new techniques and then you know, eventually rise through the ranks and you know there's there's a lot of genre conventions that go along with that and cultivating it's all about cultivating cultivating yes yes um so uh the problem is there's some really good web serials out there right Uh, a practical guide to evil fantastic great thematics great writing uh the wandering in uh i don't know worm is a classic uh if if depressing and you know there's there's good stuff so like you know you got time in your hands you want to go read something fun you go do that but then it turns out like oh i'm just here to watch this guy level for the next uh 400 chapters 
And and don't ask me how I know that that's how long it lasts. Um, so the, the the awesome thing though is, is people are starting to realize this, and so the parodies are coming out. Um, I recently uh, picked up this one called "Beware of Chicken," where a guy has read Janshinov, gets isekai into one, and don't get me started on isekai, um, and then uh, decides like, you know, screw this, I'm out, and he goes and starts a farm. Uh, which is actually more uh, in harmony with, you know, the Taoist principles that this genre is ostensibly based on. So he ends up being like accidentally more powerful than all the rest of the characters in the setting, but he also doesn't <laughs> care. So they're constantly just going around being like, oh no, like what is this powerful cultivator going to do? And then like, uh, you know, he, he does something just, you know, that's just normal, like politeness. And it's like, oh, he shows me such great respect. You know, like he must be a great master. And like, you know, innocuous things get interpreted as, you know, you know, mythical wisdom from your mentor. So it's, it's hilarious. And I highly recommend it and, and probably redeems the genre by itself and that's my rant <laughs> that has to be one of the better rants i've heard recently that was that, incredible that was that was pretty great i definitely yep yep that was great what was the what was the um uh the cereal something chicken beware of chicken because uh, so uh spirit beasts are a part of this genre like intelligent animals that get great power mm -hmm. uh, so he, he buys a chicken because he wants to be a farmer and then the the you know the chicken becomes the greatest martial artist in the land <laughs> of course also uh, to tie that in with brevins indeed we should be aware of chicken because what is it a bird it is a bird mm -hmm. it all comes together word it all comes together um all right well so i i have my my little orthodox thing and i think it's because i i think you guys will instinct yeah okay we'll go for it and then we'll cut it out if it's if it's boring um but anyway so just like first some backstory i was i thought nick was orthodox this whole time steven's like hey nick's my orthodox friend i met him at saint catherine's or whatever and uh you know we do, we do orthodox things together so i'm like oh, okay yeah, this will be cool i'll be in the minority of like you know the crypto orthodox it'll be great uh and uh so so anyway i was looking for like you know is it an orthodox bishop or a pokemon or you know like quizzes like like that and i just like couldn't <laughs> find anything i did find a story of, of of a russian vlogger who played pokemon go in a russian church and then on video said that jesus is the rarest pokemon of all because he doesn't exist and then just barely avoided seven years in prison which is kind of based um, <laughs> Um, but then, uh, so I, I, I did find, uh, some jokes, some Orthodox jokes and they, and, and, and these come from a thread on orthodoxchristianity.net and the entire thread is prefaced with seven rules about the jokes and how they like, like, you know, they should be very lighthearted. You should either be in the, the denomination or know someone very closely, anything mean instantly. No, just like all like, you know, like very specific things about what you can and, and can't post. Um, it got about 10 jokes in and then someone shut it down. Sounds about right. So I'm going to tell you where it started. And then this is where it, it ended before it was shut down. All right. So here's the first, here's the first joke. <clears throat> uh, and you guys, I'm just so you know, I'm expecting you to chorus the answer as soon as I say it. How many Orthodox does it take to change a light bulb? Change? change? My yep. grandmother donated the light bulb. <laughs> Amazing. Okay. And then here's the one uh, that's like one or two before they they said that it was in mean spirits and they shut the whole uh, thread down. Um, all right. What is the difference between an Orthodox, a Catholic, and an Anglican wedding? That one's a Pokemon. Close. But, uh, in Orthodox weddings, the mother-in-law is pregnant. In Catholic oh. weddings, the bride is pregnant. Oh no! <laughs> and in Protestant weddings, the priestess is pregnant. <laughs> oh! <laughs> yeah, I see why they got shut down. Yep, yep. <laughs> that was gonna go downhill pretty fast. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, 
much love to Sam, um, who's not here to to defend himself. So poor guy. Fuck. All right. Well, boys, it is about that time. Uh, so, or well, I, I guess I'll say any final thoughts, Nick. Any uh, last, you know, barbs you, you want to get out against uh, the master and his emissary? Uh, mm, I mean, I think you guys take it too seriously, but you did that with McIntyre, so I'm just kind of expecting it at this point. I mean, you know, David Foster Wallace would argue. <laughs> <that> <laughs> <laughs> we almost got out. <laughs> All right. Well, we didn't make it through. Uh, but nevertheless, for everyone here at the Problem with Reading Podcast, I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And I'm Nick. And uh, we'll see you on the neuroscience side. I don't know. Someone going to some better. Industrial revolutionary side. Comrade. Also, beware of chicken. There is the anime version of that where it's uh, satire on um, isekai called something with uh, like where she she maxes she gets isekai'd. She's been overworked uh, her entire life, and so her goal is to not work at all in this new life. And so she so she spends apparently three hundred years killing slime molds. There are several parodies of Level Up Maximum things, but yes, I'm watching that one. It's coming out currently. I, I I haven't seen that one, but it did look pretty amusing. Yeah, I've actually been staying away from the parodies just because I'm like, oh, great, it's going to be a low-quality send-up of a low-quality genre, but uh, Beware of Chicken was recommended to me by a Discord server I'm in. Actually, gotcha. that's probably the evil Discord, which, if anything, that's the one you should read. Um, it's it's about a uh, world where like the evil overlord list is a ontological uh, like force. Um, so, you know, when a villain monologues, it actually does seal their doom just because of the laws of reality. Um, <laughs> So the main character is a villain who's learning to become genre savvy so that she can outwit all the heroes who are stopping her from freeing her country from occupation. <laughs> and, uh, like it's genuinely great things to say about like you know what does it mean to do evil for the sake of a good cause or you know what does that do to your character? Um, and so it's, it's kind of this, this slow exploration of it as she's also like you know she starts out as a, a young orphan because that's what happens in a world like this. It grows up and then like starts to actually develop as a character and and look back on her old stuff. So it's just fantastic story. I wonder if you could apply some sort of McGill crit- uh, criticism to um kind of the the self aware genre. Oh oh irony yeah. <laughs>